Welcome back to the Super Sapiens podcast, where we explore Super Sapiens metrics, the app features and experience, and how Super Sapiens around the world are driving the next step in human performance evolution. Homo Sapiens, meet Super Sapiens. Say for me, I live in, you know, close, closest major city would be, call it Vancouver. And uh, if you, I have enough fat on, on board, I'm a lean individual. But if you had a gun to my head, I could walk, walk jog to Los Angeles with, with that gun on my head. That's how much fat energy I've got. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to this episode of the Super Sapiens Podcast. I'm your host, Zylan Fanek. With me now is David Lipman, Dr. David Lipman, the Director of Applied Science and Content at Super Sapiens, and the most important person in the room right now, mostly because he's the only person in his room. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, thank you. I am indeed the most important because the dog is not in the room for a change. So uh, when he's in the room, he is definitely the most important. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Um, you and I you? both I didn't, enjoy... No, I didn't ask you. How are you? I am doing really well. We are recording this 10 days out from a marathon I'm doing. So I'm in good spirits. Love having these big goals. Love, you know, the big goals you've been working months towards around the corner. So looking forward to that. Best part about the marathon is... Months. Months. <laughs> months. <laughs> Can you just let me lie for once on this podcast and not call me out? I just, I'm sorry, mate. Like, it's just, if you'd said weeks, I would have believed you. But like months, I can't, I can't let that fly, man. <laughs> anyway, you're excited. I'm glad to hear and I'm excited to see how you go. Um, this podcast was a great one. This chat was a great one with Dr. Paul Larison. Um, we both said that it felt like it was just a fireside chat, you know, like going on a coffee ride with mates and chatting. And he said the same as well at the end of this. So we are so excited to release this one to you. Uh, Before we do, just a couple of awesome people in the Super Sapiens community doing some really, really great things. Marjolaine Pierre, David, she had her debut... Ironman, full Ironman race. How, how did it go? How, you know, how do you do on your, your very first Ironman? Well, apparently she's a super sapien. She nailed it. She won it. Um, I think she won it pretty easily from from what I saw. So it's great to see. Super cool. I mean, congratulations, Marjolaine. Like it's, uh, yeah, it's exciting. I mean, what else is there to say? She won. Uh, beautiful spot in Ironman Cascais in Portugal. Really good. Uh, if that Iron Man app could stop sending me push notifications about that Iron Man, that'd be great because it seems to send it to me twenty four seven all year round about Iron Man Cascais. So, <laughs> and I've never done an Iron Man. I'm just a I'm just a fan apparently. So, it, if the Iron Man app could kindly stop, that'd be great. All right, calm down. Tell us how you really feel. Uh, also, big shout out to Kristen Faulkner. You might know her from making Super Sapiens headlines a few months ago, which was fantastic. Big shout out to her winning the Pan American Games time trial. She is flying. Yeah, it's, uh, it's cool to see. Congratulations, Kristen. It's uh, yeah, well deserved. We've been working for a long time uh, with the Yumbo Visma team, and we are fully into cross-country season. Cyclocross season, I should say. Yeah, cyclocross season is on. Jack, our social manager, is glued to the TV all weekends with uh, for updates on this. He loves cyclocross, so um, yeah, it's cool to see. Apparently, Fem Van Empel uh, from T- TJV won it, so that's really cool to to see uh, 
how she's going. She's unbeaten apparently in the early season, so that's exciting. Uh, what has Lauren De Crescenzo been up to? We've you and I have chatted to her before. She's got an awesome blog post out on the Super Sapiens website. What has she been up to? Yeah, she came uh, second to Kezia Nuiadona uh, at the UCI World Gravel Champs um, in the book, in Big Sugar Gravel. Sorry, Cassie Kezia is the World Gravel Champ, and uh, Lauren came second to her at the Big Sugar Gravel race. So that's really cool. Uh, again, gravel racing going from strength to strength, uh, huge growth area, really exciting, uh, particularly over in the US. Yeah, it's a big result for Lauren because Kazia is just one week out from winning the UCI Gravel World Champ, so clearly on top form, obviously. So, yeah, big shout-out to Lauren. Right, should we get to Paul, David? I think you enjoyed this chat as much as I did. I did, and I also enjoyed the photo. He sent us a bunch of photos that we could use for social, and Kane, our graphic designer, has chosen one of, of Paul, what I assume is winning an Ironman by the looks of things. I'm not sure exactly when it is. My guess is it's probably about 10 years ago and it's just the, the fashion is unreal. The watch is great. The, the sunglasses are, I, I love those sunglasses. I'll be really clear. So I'm stoked on this photo as well. So, so thanks for A, sending the photo, Paul, but B, uh, Kane, thanks for choosing that one. I really appreciate it. Yeah, head to at Super Sapiens Inc. on social to check that out. But enjoy Paul Harrison. Today we're talking to Dr. Paul Larison. Paul is the co-founder and CEO of Hit Science, co-founder and head of product at Athletica AI, and an adjunct professor at Auckland University of Technology as well as the University of Agda. He has previously worked at High Performance Sport New Zealand and as an associate professor at Edith Cohen University in Australia. He currently coaches a select few high-performance athletes in triathlon, running and cycling, as well as hosting the Training Science Podcast. Paul has authored well over 150 scientific articles and a book, Science and Application of High-Intensity Interval Training, Solutions to the Programming Puzzle. He's an active endurance athlete, having completed 18 Ironman triathlons. Paul, welcome to the Super Sapiens Podcast. Cylon, David, thanks for having me, man. Guys? Appreciate appreciate you joining us. It's uh, been excited to have this happen and, and had a bit of a chat offline. So you're currently in Canada. Uh, a bunch of this looks like you've been in spent a bunch of time in Australasia. So how did how did you end up in Australasia and and how did you end up in, back in Canada? I guess. Yeah, that's a great uh, great way to to start us off. Um, I started as a, um, a passionate triathlete that wanted to be you know, in the Olympics, uh, winning the Kona Ironman, that's kind of, that started my, my why, so to speak. Um, I just, I, I saw, I saw that battle between Mark Allen and Dave Scott in the, the iron war. I think they kind of call it now it was back in 18, 1989. I was like, Oh, that's what I want to do. Uh, and the basically spent, um, way too much time trying to do that in my early twenties. Uh, when failed, I went to, uh, to sports science uh, at the University of British Columbia and um, did bachelor's and master's there. Got a scholarship to Australia and uh, in, in the University of Queensland. Did my PhD there on the area that's kind of now my, my specialty in high intensity interval training. I did my PhD in that at the University of Queensland and then really just spent uh, 20 years ultimately down under in, in uh, Australia and New Zealand doing both research 
and then also really be, you know being involved with their the Olympic program first in Australia, and then um, and then kind of moving. I, I got headhunted to um, high performance sport New Zealand in uh, what was it two thousand and two thousand and nine when they were kind of building out their program. And I did two Olympic cycles there, Rio, uh, sorry, um, London and Rio. And then also at the same time, really caught the love for coaching. Um, I, I just really liked, I like doing all, I like, I really like being in that middle space between research and actually pra and practice. So yeah. And then I guess uh, I mar you know, throughout all of this, I married a gal from where I'm at now. That's really the answer to your question. That's what brought me back here to Revelstoke, BC. And uh, we had, you know, we had a daughter. We had to bring her back here to to share her with the uh, with the grandparents and whatnot. And um, but that so I just used that as an opportunity to to write the book with my colleague Martin Bushite, and then uh, build out Hit Science, which is like an online training course that teaches the book. And then at the same time, we thought, oh, we can't just have the book. We need to also have a technology as well. And that's where the my latest kind of endeavor that I'm battling with now, which is Athletica AI, and uh, that applies the principles of, of hit science. And, and, and all the while, I, I still, yeah, I'm just in that middle space between research and, and practice of, uh, of, yeah, exercise training. How can we best exercise, train to get the most bang for buck? Before we dive more into the sporting side, let's uh, hover around the romantic side a bit. How, where do you meet your Canadian wife when you are in Australia, New Zealand? Because generally, you know, people leave their country, they work on another continent. Generally, they meet someone from there. So how, how does your story come about? <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, go, uh, I'll go deep for the listener and, and you guys. So I, uh, I basically, I was um, out of a relationship in Australia and it was, I was miserable. I think, you know, many of us can reflect on when we're going through these tough times and uh, you, know, you know, heartbreak and whatnot. And it, it corresponded with a sabbatical that I took. So, and uh, and I, I was fortunate, I was in Australia at Edith Cowan University, you guys mentioned. And then I, um, I, I got my sabbatical through the University of British Columbia. So I got to come back to, to, um, to, to BC in, in Vancouver. And uh, whilst I was back home, I was like, okay, I gotta meet, I gotta meet a Canadian gal so I can sort of settle, settle down here. I went hard online, right? It was like it was the days of the early online on, online programs, and that's where I met my uh, my my current wife. I met her online. Of course, I had you know my job was in Australia, so I had to had to bring her back, and uh, and it was like yeah, you know, kind of a back and forth relationship for a while between a, between Perth, Australia, other side of the world, and Vancouver, Canada. But I, I convinced her to come along, and she uh, yeah, that's uh, that's how I met my wife. I mean, that's really rough to take it to Perth because, I mean, if you're taking it to Queensland, it'd be different. But Perth is like, it's a bit different than, than Queensland. I mean, University of Queensland, beautiful campus, running track, beautiful dirt track around the outside. You know, it's it's a lovely part of the world and Perth is a little bit less so. I know I've offended a bunch of people, but Perth's not quite the, Queensland. The surfing's pretty good. The surfing's pretty yeah, good there. That's fair. If you don't mind the sharks, the surfing is great. Exactly. Exactly. You just navigate sharks and it's pretty sweet, but yeah, no. And to be honest, it was the, we were, we were brief there and it was exactly kind of for that reason that, uh, Alison just really, she kind of wasn't totally into the hot, dry weather of, 
of, of Perth and, and just kind of, she, she missed the mountains and whatnot. And, uh, but that's why New Zealand really, when we got an opportunity in New Zealand really spoke to her happy wife, happy life. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of a bit of a no brainer to, to go across the ditch and, and spend the next, you know, nine years or so in New Zealand. How did you end up at Edith Cowan? Because if you were, you know, UQ doing your thing there, and I'm sure, you know, Olympic programs are pretty much East Coast Australia, right? And, and for the listeners who are not familiar with Australian geography, Edith Cowan, Perth, that's West Coast. It's about the same distance as New York is from LA from the East Coast uh, of uh, Australia, which is where most of Australia is, right? Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, they're all within a couple of hours flying each other on the East Coast. So you're talking about six hour flight across country. So how did you end up in, in the West? Well, there's this this cool dude named uh, Professor Rob Newton, and he was just kind of at the point where he was building this dynasty, I guess, that he wanted. And Edith Cowan really became quite a hotbed for uh, exercise science research. And um, I was just lucky to be on one of those lists of, of ones that, that, that Rob chose to kind of go over there. And, um, you know, he just, he, he built, you know, he brought a lot of us over there in the sports science, strength and conditioning, uh, exercise training and, uh, and money was there at the same time. Uh, right. When that's, and, and when you kind of put, you put good people with, with well-resourced and, um, it's just a great recipe for, for doing great things. And, um, that's where just, that's where it sort of all, all happened. So that's, I was quite excited to go, to go over there at that time. It was the right stage in my life, just kind of coming out. Uh, I had, I had networks into this, into the Australian Institute of Sport, Dave Martin. And, uh, and, and that was, but it was Rob Newton really, that was, that brought us all over at the same sort of place. Uh, it was loads of fun. You mentioned uh, two Olympic cycles in New Zealand. What sports did that involve and what role were you playing? Yeah, uh, I was the physiology manager. And so I, my job was, it wasn't a really cool title, but titles don't really matter. It's, it, you know, my, my job was to, to bring up, to build a team of physiologists that could, that had kind of coaching prowess. And, um, you know, the, the um, and that was, yeah, that was my, my job was to really be that, you know, that hub, that nexus between research um, and, and application, right, and practice. And um, it, it couldn't just be about doing the research. It was, and, and, and likewise, it couldn't just be about the practice. We were really looking for that evidence-led kind of, um, kind of program. Um, and, and that was, that was, that was my role. And my, the, I was, I, I was involved in all the sports, but I brought people over that would be, um, helpful in the national sporting organization. So people like Dan Plews who went into the rowing program and they, you know, made great success with the practices that they put in there. The, uh, you know, Dan Plews did his whole PhD on heart rate variability. Um, and that was all from the, from that program. Right. And it was, and this was applied at the same time. So the research was being done on people like, you know, um, the Kiwi pear or, um, you know, Mahi Drysdale, uh, Emma Twig, like all these, these were the, these are the, the subjects in all that, that research you can, you, that you can see now. And these are, these are methods that are now all applied on any of the, um, the, the HRV training apps that you might see. Um, we, we were experimenting with, um, uh, glucose analyzers as well. And, you know, the super sapiens is all about, we, we were, we were playing around with Dexcom at the time. It was kind of an earlier, 
uh, earlier version of that. But that was, um, again, these were just really great days. It was fairly well resourced. We were small type team initially in the early phases, we could move really quickly. I, I just, I love that small type team kind of philosophy that works in coaching practice that works in organizations. And, um, yeah, that was, that was sort of what we were doing. And, and I think I, I can say that we had impact as well. If, and it's just, if, if you just look at metal tallies, if you look at where New Zealand uh, was and where they went to, um, you know, that was, we were, our, we were part of, we were, you know, we were one hub in a, um, you know, a, a conglomerate of, of many that, uh, that were having fun. Yeah, it's uh, a couple of things for, for listeners. That level of re- research on that level of athlete is very rare. You almost never see research on top tier athletes. So that to get that done is is uh, impressive and, and a tribute to what the program is built for. I can imagine there was some unbelievable conversations had informally in lunchrooms and over coffee and, and perhaps over a beer. Ignoring those, because I know some of them will be too hard for the podcast or maybe not not okay for the podcast. But what are some of the key learnings you took from those cycles? So you spent eight years there and, you know, in a high performance organization where many of us would be lucky to spend any time. So what are some key learnings you took away from from that period? And it could be in managing people or, or coaching or, or science. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And it's, uh, I guess, the the simple answer is to ask good questions. That's really kind of what it kind of what it comes down to, to be patient and ask good questions and um, and and uh, being patient by you, you time to make the impact to uh, and that, but if you go in with each individual and you ask them questions, whether it's a stubborn coach who is drenched in traditions, um, you need to go down, you need to have a beer or coffee with that coach and you just need to to, to um, build trust over time and, um, and, and ask good questions. And, um, you know, again, credit to with the, with all of these innovations and successes that we had with them, uh, the credit really also has to go to the athletes that were also asking questions that wanted to be better, that the um, equally built trust around uh, whether it's Dan Plews or, or others, you know what I mean? The, this is the credit needs to go to those coaches and athletes as well that were open to trying something else and, and experimenting themselves. Um, so I think, yeah, those are, those are the key things, but it just, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen overnight, but if, but if you're, yeah, if you're part, if you're uh, open to, uh, you know, being, you know, to change ultimately and following a little bit of science, good things can happen. You glossed over the success from the program, speaking about the medal tally. Can you go more into detail about that? What kind of successes did you guys have specifically? Oh, you're, uh, you're going to challenge me, I think. Let's try. Let's see if I can remember. I think when, I think when we started, uh, we looked at the Beijing games. I think New Zealand was something like eight or nine medals. And then I think with London, I think we went up to 12 from memory and I think or 12 uh, and then Rio I think was like 21 and I think they've you know I've I've since left after Rio but I think they they even better I think they bettered it even even more so in uh, in Tokyo just uh, there you know New Zealand's kind of a summer dominant um, 
Olympic Olympic program. They have, do have a couple winter sports, but it's mostly mostly summer that, that they focus on. Um, but yeah, it was some, something like that. Um, and of course, and the the whole uh, premise again for my hiring was Ufi, you know, prior, you know, uh, post post Beijing was they they were doing okay, but it was it, it, the the impetus kind of came back from the Sydney cycle. So um, Sydney Olympics was wasn't great really for the New Zealand uh, team, and Aussies were kicking goals. I was going to say it would have been terrible because Australia did well as well in Sydney. <laughs> exactly right. So the yeah the Kiwis are like, come on, we gotta and yeah they uh, they invested. Um, yeah, you, you you invest with money and and intelligence, right? And uh, so they. They they found you know found me who's a mad passionate you know mad professor and uh, and that's 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 how I got there. And uh, any standout moments with an athlete with what they achieved and what they had to overcome that you're proud of and will be a, a memory for you forever, or is it more on the on the coach's side? Um. I mean, I'm really proud of my whole. I'm really proud of my whole. Uh, physiology team um we just had some uh yeah just the work that they did so you know probably in particular dan clues rod siegel uh julia casadio um and uh yeah those i mean those were kind of key members that that really sort of we formed a formed a real real tight team and built we built physiology into the various different um, NSOs uh, with similar philosophies, of, you know, just measuring what matters back to super sapiens, really, you know, like these are the kinds of things that, you know, these are not, uh, adoption of technology is not an easy thing for a lot of, a lot of coaches and programs. So I'm, I'm, and, and it, again, it's back to that, those principles of taking the time, being patient, asking good questions, um, you know, to, to get that into into those programs so i think i'm most proud of that um if i'm looking to a coaching moment it would be it would just be really successful days with um with athletes that i've coached uh kyle buckingham um andy busher i mean is you know just big big iron man wins would be the the ones i mean those are just really special days when it does finally come together and um you know like <laughs> like with all athletes, there's a bit of a crapshoot that, that happens. You gotta, you gotta fire on the on the day, and the, for whatever reason, sometimes you don't have your day, even though the preparation might look actually like perfect. But you know, it's magic when you when you actually have those days. It's just there's something surreal about it. Uh, almost you know makes me want to kind of cry just even sort of thinking about having those days with them because they feel the same way, and you're. The, you know, again, on my own podcast, the training science podcast that you talk to coaches and they, you know, you're embedded with, with that performance, even though you're not kind of doing the work, you're just, you're right there with them. So those are magic when you, when you have those two. Yeah. I, I know that feeling. It's uh, I haven't had quite a, that same level of success with athletes, but when you see the athlete succeed, it's almost better than when you succeed yourself as an athlete. I think that's uh, most coaches would say that, but uh, you did mention that you, started in endurance sport and then went into to physiology, which is very classic, right? The failed athlete becomes the coach, like, or the exercise scientist. You can, you're speaking to one as well to some degree. Um, 
my question, how did you get into endurance sports to start with? Because you talked about the Iron Battle, right? And you talked about watching it in 89, but you're talking about triathlon, which for most listeners seems like a big sport, but it was first in the Olympics in Sydney. You're talking about 89, so you're talking well before then. How did you get interested? Just quickly, Paul, did you did you notice he said he was a failed athlete to a degree? He doesn't fully own it. He still like has a chip on his shoulder. Well, no, <laughs> I'm saying that I, to a degree I'm the same in that I went into exercise science but I didn't stay. So I left, mate. So I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna <laughs> tell Paul that that he's uh, him and I are the same because he he was uh, he had the endurance to stay and I didn't, mate. I jumped I jumped ship. I got bored and jumped ship or something like that. So I don't have the same staying power. <laughs> well, my dad would say that I spent way too much time doing it. Yeah, they were my parents were so frustrated because I was just you know I, I did it. I was I was trying till I was. I mean, it maybe started when I was 18 and, and tried till I was like 25 and, you know, wasted a lot of money living out of a van, living out of a VW Combi van in uh, awesome. going to different races and stuff like, you know, I was, and then mooching off my parents and, uh, yeah, it was just going like in my parents' mind, I was going nowhere. Right. Like they were really frustrated <laughs> pulling their hair up, yeah. but yeah, I, st I started the passion. My dad was, was responsible for it because he, um, he needed to quit, quit smoking when, and he, and he did that when I was about eight. So to, to quit, to help him quit smoking, he would, every time he wanted to have an urge for a cigarette, he, he'd need to go for a run. And I just wanted to be with my dad. So I'd follow him and turned it out, turned out I had a knack for endurance, uh, as an eight year old. And then just became, I just became a bit of a runner, um, in my in my in my early youth and then the sport of triathlon came along and it was you know I had a knack for that as well um you know and and that's that's kind of how it how it evolved you mentioned kyle buckingham earlier is it the south african kyle buckingham or was it a new zealander kyle buckingham no so south african Kyle. oh he's a mate of mine he's a mate of yours yeah, I used to live right down the road. We used to train, not train together. I would train with him on these easy days. Um, but yeah, very, very good friends. And he's moved to Arizona now. But yeah, super good friends. That's great. He's a legend. Yeah, I know what you're talking about, those Ironman wins. I was either doing the same Ironman he won twice in South Africa. It's in my town. And I was on the course for one of them. And I was also supporting him on the other one. And it was, man, it was emotional. It was, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I, I mean, I remember waking up at, uh, with my wife, we woke up at um, 4 or 5 a.m. to, you know, we'd, we'd fallen asleep. You know, we're, we're over in, over here. And we'd woken up at 4 or 5 a.m. Um, and uh, after a few hours sleep, just to, to get some during the night. And it was, and yeah, we, we couldn't believe, yeah, just, yeah, the, we watched the end of it with him, uh, him coming through and, you know, checking all the splits and stuff. And yeah, it was, yeah, it was emotional. We were, so it was, it was really, really cool. <laughs> right, you know, I'm just reflecting now on all the, all the video and, and footage and stuff of him coming through, right? And like to do that on home soil, it's it's a big big deal right like that and again that um that iron man there as well in uh sorry what is it it's lost the, the port port elizabeth yeah port elizabeth. yeah like that's yeah. that is just chalk out right like it's just chalk a block of like it's so filled and the, the what are the what are the um the sausages that you've got that are kind of like all over the course right everyone's cooking the what's the Puro thing name? Bors, yeah. 
It's awesome. <laughs> exactly, right? So you're doing the race and you're smelling those are all over the place. The oh, beer is flowing. It just It's going nuts. Apparently, like, it's just in terms of a, a, like a, a vibe and stuff, it's really quite special. No, it's voted best run course, you know, in the world in Ironman time after time. And that's because the, the run is four loops and it's just lined with people and it's just, you know, everyone and it's just, it's unbelievable. I've done it three times now. And then last year when I did Kona, it was like, it was so hard for me to do that run on Kona because you go out to the energy lab and there are barely any supporters and just out on the highway and it's just, you have, and all I'd been used to is, Boulevard smells, beer flowing, your your mates cheering you on. So the marathon is like a party, man. So that made Kona like extra hard. It wasn't because it was the first time you actually completed a full Ironman without a reduced swim or something, was it, Zyla? <laughs> Luckily, I edit this podcast. This part, that part's not making it in for sure. Not. <laughs> but yeah, no. I mean, to your point, is it's uh, it's doomsday out there in the you know. Uh, in the energy lab, right? Like it's, it's different. It's a different environment, isn't it? It's pretty quiet. It's just you, <laughs> just you and others that are just absolutely suffering. So psychologically, yeah, there's a lot of walking that happens in there. So we talked a bit about some of your athletes. We also talked about, uh, you know, you've been involved in high performance sport for, for decades now. And you also recently co-authored a paper that I really enjoyed on the evolution of uh, endurance sports training and coaching talk us through a little bit of what you've seen change and and where you think it's heading i know i mean we could reference the article if you want or we can just sort of be a bit more free range if you want there but i I think it's some of the stuff that you wrote there i think is really um some of our listeners would be surprised by it you know and and i think they could take a lot from it yeah well i mean credit to oivin oivin sandback and there you know 25 other co-authors i was just i was just one of of 25, but basically the, and I was, I was asked, um, so each of the 25, uh, sports scientists with a kind of a, you know, worked with endurance athletes were asked a question of, you know, what were, what were the things that, um, contributed to the increase the improved performances ultimately that were, that we're witnessing today. And then, uh, uh, you know, over the last 10 years, and then what are the things that were, that are probably going to make the, you know, move the needle again over the next 10. So, you know, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'll, I think I, you know, I just kind of, what, what was I, my, my thinking was around, you know, I, th- I think monitoring techniques have, have been one contributor to, to bring us to this point again, things, you know, um, I'm not sure if glucose monitors per se, but it's like, it's these types of tools. I think, you know, maybe glucose monitors are, are taking us to the next, um, to the next, to the next 10, but, but it was things like that HRV, like it's really, it's a quantification of the, the, the quantified self is, is kind of coming in and it's giving us more insight. It's giving us more insight into things like health, um, things like polarized training, you know, things like stress. Um, so that, that is, that's sort of one, um, one component, the access to information too, like the internet yep. is, is just like, you know, you can get podcasts. Yeah. Podcasts. Exactly. Right. Like, so you can get, if you're resourceful, you can get access to all the info. Right. Um, and ex, you know, leading experts are, are everywhere and they're, they're, they're happy to share that, um, what they're doing. 
um, you know, even if they're even if they're the best in the world. So yeah, that all that act, all that info is 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 available for everyone. And um, and yeah, I think those are, that would be the things that are really kind of con- and have contributed to moving the needle till till now. And then that will continue. And then it's I think really it's just more of the same, except add in for me artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, things that you again we can't even see right now, well, we're going to see new things. And I think AI is probably going to help us see those things and, um, you know, more quantified self, more, more sensors. Um, and I think really also is better, you know, probably this one's almost kind of coming, um, in tune to me a little bit more recently from, from, uh, feedback almost, uh, so I'll share it. And it's, and I think it's, there wasn't actually a great enough uh, reflection, um, to, you know, communication with the coach. What does the coach actually believe? We're doing that work now, but it's like, that's, that was some kind of the, some of the feedback is like, well, what a, you know, it's like, great. There's the scientific kind of insight, but, um, yeah. Um, who was John Kiley? I had a chat with him and she's a a periodization kind of guru. I know. I know his work. You know, who, yeah. And he was challenging me a little bit on, on what sort of what we wrote and saying that, you know, he's, cause he's found evidence that, you know, the, there's in one of his papers, the, the, you know, you're, you're not necessarily getting that info. Uh, you're getting that info from sports scientists, but you're not necessarily getting that info from coaches. So there needs to be um, a better, a better, uh, um, you know, movement uh, initiative to access coaches' uh, thoughts on all of this. And, you know, because coaches don't necessarily use all the tools that we use. Maybe, yeah. you know, they there's a lot more free-flowing uh, attachment of, with the mind, um, belief effect, these kinds of things. And maybe in the future, it, it's going to be getting better access and understanding and appreciation of of that and that relationship to get that, um, to get more out of, out of the athlete. Yeah. And I think I that, that, that's where, but that's where AI comes in, right? If you've got a platform that does a lot of the data analysis for you, that does a lot of the planning, programming X's and O's for you, you can spend a ton more time on connection, emotional connection, buy-in, the art of coaching, modification, all those things that are very, you know, at the moment, AI is not even close to that stuff, right? So that's where the, the real human aspect comes to, and it's the, it's the art of the science or the art that goes with the science. And I think that's where we'll we'll end up, right? Is it's just about not having to have six data analysts to assimilate all the sensor info to have one report that tells you that somebody may or may not be ready, but you better about just ask them the question anyway. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's what I see as well. Yeah, that's that's where AI is going to kind of come in, and it's it is it's going to free up even more time. You know, I can already see it with the with the the beta work, the pre-beta work that we're doing with Athletica. It's, you know, and, and again, this is you know integrating ChatGPT into it, and it's just you know, yeah, like you're getting these analyses that we do as coaches that might take us twenty minutes. You're getting them, you know, instantly. You're getting them in seconds, and it's like, okay, you know, you've just you just freed up these chunks of 20 minutes. Well, now you can really have a good, good conversation about what you've seen immediately with your athlete. Um, and 
yeah, so that's, that's pretty, pretty cool. And, and yeah, you're going to start seeing even more things that, that we haven't seen before and better relationships. And, you know, I'm doing some, uh, really fun work with, with a colleague, um, uh, Philippe, um, in, in Athletica and, and he's, you know, we're really getting into the durability concept a lot, which is, Love it. Which is, you know, was more and more talk about that one. We saw a lot of, we saw that in, uh, in Kona, right? Um, so the, the athletes that were going well, if you kind of retrospectively go back, um, the, the athletes that were going well were really showing great, great durability. So, um, yeah, uh, who was it? The the athlete that that had a had a challenge there, you could kind of see it. But uh, Taylor, I think yeah, Taylor Nib, yep. Yeah, she kind of faded a little bit, right? But and yeah. but in theory, she should have faded because she's a short course athlete, and she's a lot younger, right? Annie Haug has a few more years, more durability, longer course stuff, and and ran through. So exactly. makes, a ton of, makes a ton of sense. Quickly for the for the dummy on the call, what is durability? How would you define it? Yeah, so and really, really simply put, um, if you've got like training peaks, there's a variable on the side of your analysis sheet, and it's called uh, a, um, I think it's called aerobic decoupling, and it shows a percentage number, and um, it's if the number is high, like you know, starting to go positive, like 10, 15, 20 percent, if um, that aerobic decoupling number is going like that, that means the heart rate is decoupling from your pace or power. In other words, your pace or power is falling and your heart rate is increasing. We maybe would have called it cardiovascular drift in the, in the past. Conversely, someone doing a really good performance, right? Like Annie Hogg, um, they're going to have a very like a, a number more towards zero on that aerobic decoupling number, or maybe even negative where their pace is being lifted, their power is being lifted and their heart rate is going, uh, is going down. So, you know, back to Kyle Buckingham, um, this is the kinds of things when I knew Kyle was ready to fire or Andy, or any athlete, like they're starting to get into their training where they're doing these these efforts and that aerobic decoupling number is is zero or negative and um it's just there's just this stability this durability that's being shown as we um you know at, with with when training is imp- you know, when you're adapting to your training and um for longer and longer kind of thing and this is yeah, the, again, this is we're putting a um, a newsletter out on this one. Probably a blog we'll put on this one. But but yeah, um, Taylor Nib probably not showing this because she just doesn't have the experience yet. Um, where but she she will have it and she'll be a she'll be a killer soon. Oh yes, yeah. as soon as she gets that in her in her training diet. Yeah, and so maybe said a different way, Zion, it's also sometimes called fatigue resistance, or you know maybe it's your ability to sustain a set output for a period of time. Uh, for you know an extended period of time perhaps so one person may be able to sustain let's call it 95% of FTP for two hours and somebody may be able to do that for two hours and 20 minutes right so that difference mm-hmm. is is got nothing to do with their FTP or their VO2 max or their economy it's got to do with durability right so it's a sort of fourth metric that's being used now that's sort of 
adding another dimension for us of it's not just about what are these heart rates it's about how long can you sustain work at that heart rate yeah yeah and it's typically in the context where it's where that aerobic decoupling uh, durability i think andy jones is calling it uh, resiliency or something but yeah. uh, unfortunately but but um just got a new paper on it we're all talking about the same thing it yeah. um the best like where we're usually looking at this number is in the mid zone zone three if you're on a five zone model or zone two if you're in a three zone model but it's it's that's usually where we're working when we're we're doing these uh you know endurance and and ultra and ultra distance kind of a, kind of events but that's um yeah that's um that's where that, that, that's that's recognized now like you said fourth dimension it's super important and um AI is going to help us oh, yeah. get more insight into that and, and, and find other things that are related to that and how you can build it. And uh, so this is the, the fun sandbox that we're in right now. And does durability increase and improve with time, your body getting used to that demand and just getting comfortable with it? And, you know, does Lucy Charles Barkley go and win after a bunch of seconds because... She's obviously gone and worked on her weaknesses and her body just, you know, is used to that effort. And that last bit of 3%, 4%, she had to, you know, in, like improve on the bike and then hold it on the run. She's now more durable and got that. Besides something else that David and I spoke about offline was her choosing to train at home for six weeks on the indoor trainer mostly. And we had said that I think just the benefit of her not traveling and training at home, I thought she was majorly going to just benefit from that alone. But anyway like always saying durability I mean, improves with time etc yeah a few i mean a few comments on that she did get a coaching change which i think made a huge difference for her with dan lorang taking her on uh you know dan knows what he's doing and he would have been working on those those kind of sessions with her um and you know probably probably not coincidental that you know his his uh two athletes went one two right that's pretty, yeah. pretty cool right and in very um, different ways as well Yes, they did. They did. Um, yeah, almost reminiscent of uh, the male race last year, right? With again, yeah. Olav, Olav Alexander Boo, um, again, and and Olav and and Dan are, are good mates as well. So yeah. probably, probably, yeah, I think they they might be doing something right there, which is kind of cool. Um, and then, yet yeah, also to your to your point, Zylon, um, being in that home base is is so critical as well if we go back to kyle he was able to train at the race venue right like for for so long before and having not every time remember every time you travel as a pro you have to um you you lose training consistency and uh this i get this i've stolen this from steven seiler but steven's really when he kind of breaks down big picture google earth view of training you want to have regular cell signaling with um, with a controlled or maintained uh, systemic, um, you know, autonomic stress, and that's the whole concept for polarized training. Whatever, however you want to do it, you can't get your um, nervous system too out of whack, right? Um, or you or you all of a sudden are going to stop. But you do want this regular signaling to let your body know oh, I'm an I'm an endurance athlete. I, I, I want to be always having lots of mitochondria on board uh, on all the cells that need to do the work. And back to your point about Lucy, like she's at home, she's regularly signaling with, with um, controlled autonomic, autonomic balance. 
So, um, yeah, this, that's, that, again, that's a recipe for success. We know that. Yeah. And that relates back to one of our previous podcasts, uh, on life battery that, uh, listeners can go back and check out. But, um, it, that's basically the concept of adaptive reserve mixed in with some autonomic balance stress stuff, Paul, just for, for your context. Um, yeah, I, I saw that podcast. I'm going to check yeah, that out. Yeah. It was as I and I special. So, um, get to hear more of the, the dulcet tones of the Australian, but, um, I wanted to ask you, this is an area you know, we, we've been talking about the Kona and I think I saw an article talking uh, about Annie Hug's nutrition and I thought you'd be a really good person to ask. And this is a great segue into some of our discussion that I wanted to get you on about, which is lower carbohydrate approaches. Cause apparently Annie hasn't been able to take or tolerate too many carbohydrates and used what I assume is uh, amino acids on the run. She, she said protein or the, the article quoted protein. I'm assuming it was probably amino acids specifically, but let's talk a little bit about, um, some of the, your sort of knowledge in, in that space of lower carbohydrate performance, because we've got, you know, a lot of athletes who come on this podcast and talked about 120, 140 grams of carbohydrates. We got, you know, athletes who are all now trying to push things up. Uh, but, but you're not, you know, sort of well-known in the space, at least to me, um, in advocating for possibly not so much of that. So can we talk a little bit about that? That'd be great for our listeners. For sure. Yeah. It's always a bit of a hot and, uh, you could even consider sometimes controversial, Yeah, <laughs> but Whatever I think, like, I'm, I just I appreciate there's differences uh, across the board, but uh, and and yeah, I'm I'm happy for those that are finding success in in the high carb realm. Uh, that that's great. It just uh, it doesn't work for every person, that's for sure. Um, and let's uh, maybe just let's just think about the 120 gram per hour um, concept, or even just the high carb concept, right? Like a high carb diet versus a low carb diet. There is, every time um, glucose is put into the system, and we, you'll see that if you've got a super sapiens device, right? You'll see a rise in that blood glucose. And um, that needs to be balanced by, by insulin. And when insulin is, uh, you know, is insulin levels are raised, um, that is an anabolic hormone. That's the storage uh, hormone. So, um, again, it's not just going to store your, uh, glucose into glycogen. It's also going to, um, you know, store fat as well. So it's not going to allow fat to be released. Now back to the concept of durability that we spoke about. Um, this is, a, and this is coming from Peter Leo's work. I recently had him on the podcast, uh, Dan Plews, Steven Seiler's work, a lot of the, a lot of the uh, elements that go into, or the main element that goes into building durability is your ability to burn fat as a fuel. So if durability is now important in the, the performance that you are about to, um, to, to, to do, you know, you don't want to sabotage your ability to burn fat. So you just have to be really, really kind of cautious about how much insulin is present in the system, because that might be sabotaging your, your adaptation and your ability to burn fat. So think about, you know, there's a lot of talk sometimes about how much carbohydrate that you have between workouts. That's a prime time to actually keep carbohydrate low and force your body actually to, to burn fat, uh, and to take on amino acids, um, so, um, yeah, again, that's, that's, so that's one thing that I 
maybe don't always agree with the majority on. Um, and again, I've seen it sort of done differently. Um, again, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling here, so feel free to kind of jump, jump in. Well, on, I was going to say, perhaps an interesting contrast might be thinking about a front of the pack person versus a back of the pack person. We can make this a marathon or talking about a two hour marathon versus say four to, to five hour marathon, or we could talk about the um, sort of nine hour versus 17 hour iron person. Right. And, and mm-hmm. talk about them, but those metabolically are very different. They're the same distance, but the durations are different. And I think people misconstrue that the physiology is more similar because of the distance than the duration and with respect to fuel fueling requirements. So maybe if you could touch on that a little bit would be a good way to sort of keep this one going. Yeah, that's a, that's a brilliant, um, brilliant way to sort of think about it. When you think of, uh, your 17 hour iron man person or versus an eight hour iron man, what, what's the huge difference? Well, um, it's metabolic. Me versus Kyle. Yeah, versus Kyle, exactly, right? So Kyle versus your 17-hour person is, uh, you know, the, me- the metabolic flexibility, the durability. Um, and when we say metabolic flexibility, we usually mean your ability to burn both carbohydrates and fat, typically a- as a fuel. Um, yes, amino acids are, are into the system, but the, they're not the, they're, they tend to not be the, the major one relative to the other two. Um, I, I believe they're... You know, um, they probably can be taken on a little bit more than, than we think, especially in more the low-carb athlete. Um, they're probably used as a fuel gluconeogenesis. We can talk about lactate as well. That's a fascinating one in the, in the low-carb person. But, but, you know, back to what you're, what you're saying was the, the metabolic flexibility difference is huge. Like a person that's doing 17-hour Ironman, they're probably not great at oxidizing fat. They're... Um, it's probably pretty, pretty small. And if we look at their, you know, their profile on a, a progressive exercise test, they're probably um, almost very, very carb dominant. They're almost very reliant on taking those, um, those gels and, and carbohydrates in to, um, to get any sort of lift in their, um, uh, in their performance. And they could really do wonders of their, in their performance by becoming more metabolically flexible, by building their aerobic engine, which tends to be the ability to burn fat, develop more mitochondria. Um, and, um, and yeah, that's, uh, whereas in the metabolically flexible Kyle, he can, you know, he can really, he can take on 120 probably, and, and probably not sabotage his, his system too much because He's been doing long fasted rides, right? So Kyle, Kyle was the the man at doing eight hours fasted, right? Which again, that that that's uh, you know you, that's crazy to consider for, for for people. And he'd do that at you know 210 watts. So you know, just imagine doing 210 watts easy, you know, in the saddle for for eight hours. And uh, you know, that's that's the kind of that's what he would do, right? And that's imagine now you have the the capacity to do that. Imagine how ramped up your fat building system is or fat burning system is. It's huge, right? So now you throw, throw the gasoline on that. Well, now you've really got an engine that, that can kind of fire and, of course, win, win events as, as he has. So um, that's, that's the big difference. Am I understanding this correctly? So are you saying like front pro athletes, they have an ability to use fat as fuel? 
more efficiently. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. No, no question. No question. And we, you know, again, so Stephen and I did uh, with the, Kate, the late uh, Ken Headlett and Dan Flues as well. We did a, a study, I think it was published maybe 2017, 18. It's titled um, Rethinking, um, Rethinking um, the Role of Fat as a Fuel in High Intensity Exercise. And what, is this the one where you got the runners and you looked yeah, at the runners, the two groups yeah. of runners. And it's like, you've got a, a group of elite runners and you got yep. a group of uh, recreational runners and it's the same, same. It's the 17 hour versus the versus Kyle. And um, you looked at the VO2 max profile. You looked at their um, and, and you looked at the, what fuel they're burning when they're doing high intensity work and the metabolically flexible Kyle, Kyle group, they were able to burn high levels of fat at their um, at their VO2 max, whereas the recreational 17-hour guys, um, they were only able to burn carbohydrates. And they, the, the, the big thing that separated the two was to the ability to burn fat. That's what's taking the, taking the difference. So fat metabolism relates to VO2 max. We all heard about VO2 max. So I want a high VO2 max. You want a high VO2 max, work on your fat burning ability. And think about it. That's your, your ability to burn oxygen, beta oxidation. That's in the mitochondria. That's, um, you know, that's, that's, that's energy taking, you know, um, that's O2 uh, is, is, is used in the electron transport chain. I mean, for whatever reason though it's like fat has been kind of shamed uh throughout the whole the whole process but that's what you want your system to to use um and you guys and we have so much of it i guess unlimited so um yeah they they say like i don't know where you live in the world but say for me i live in you know close closest major city would be call it vancouver and uh, if you, I have enough fat on, on board, I'm a lean individual, but if you had a gun to my head, I could walk, walk jog to Los Angeles with, with that gun on my head. That's how much fat energy I've got without anything else, with just water. Like that's how much energy I've got on my body. That's a long, that's a long walk, right? So that's what we, we all have. Um, and you just, you just need to be able to access it and you access it by, not having high levels of insulin. And so to put a bow on that for the listeners who are probably screaming out at home, okay, so how do I do that? And how do I train this? And how do I get this up? So to my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Paul, on some level, this is developed over years of training and that even in those who are taking on some more carbohydrates, years of endurance training will probably increase fat oxidation capacity. And then the second way is probably to do with the second lever to pull is around diet and availability of carbohydrates, circulating insulin levels, and when that happens. So often talked about, I think Christy Storachuk mentioned this, is kind of start out faster perhaps, and if you still have to fuel, then then start fueling. But starting with low insulin levels seems to be a, a key factor because of the absorption being different slightly when you're, you're exercising. And then otherwise doing some faster training, maybe not tons of it, but at least some of it. Is that fair to, to say in summary? Totally, yeah, that's, that's perfect. But again... Um, and we had a, we had a great, uh, guy, Rune Talsnes, uh, from Norway. He did a really cool study, uh, in, in cross-country skiers where he was, um, he like, he showed that 
um, you can get overtrained doing this as well. So you need to do need to recognize it's a stress. You don't want to do every single session probably fasted. Um, so uh, you know you need to recognize that that's a stressor. But again, if we go back to Kyle's program, right? He's doing that fasted ride that I just mentioned. And again, he doesn't do eight hours out of the out of the gate, right? He'd probably start with one if you're. It just depends on where you are because he. You know, uh, Kyle came to me and he was this, this in, he was an individual that was having issues with his metabolic flexibility. You start with one hour, then two hours, and it's just, you just build it up like training. Um, but yeah, you, you can get sort of too much stress in that too. So you got to just you really have to kind of be careful and manage it. Um, don't do, don't do every single session like that, but, but yeah, that is the biggest lever. I think you can pull, you mentioned the two levers, endurance training and nutrition. I think nutrition is probably the bigger of the two levers. Um, there's the old saying you, you can't outrun a bad diet. So, um, yeah, this, uh, that, again, it's, that's, that's my, my belief is, uh, you know, really, really have a look at the fuel that you're, that you're putting into your, into your body. Um, and just, you know, it doesn't have to all necessarily be low carb, but, um, is it, is it whole food? Is it something that came out of mother earth? That's the, that's my main principle. So I'm not, uh, and again, I'm, and I think the processed keto products are probably just as bad in my in my view as as some of the processed carb products. So it's just uh, I'm just really believing in a holistic uh, whole food approach. On that, have you done a lot of work um, in metabolically unhealthy athletes? And what is a metabolically unhealthy athlete? <laughs> Sure. Well, I think a metabolically unhealthy athlete is one that can't access the, the fat that they can almost see around them. So they're um, done a lot of work with uh, the legend uh, Dr. Phil Maftone, who's uh, you know, and we we coined the we coined it the phrase overfat. And um, basically, if you if you know, you can look at your your BMI, your your body mass index, but the real simple way is just look in the mirror. And if you're looking in the mirror and it's and you've um, you've got fat around you, uh, you're looking in the mirror naked. And if you're looking around you and and you don't and you you can see clearly that there's fat that doesn't belong there. And you know we have to be cautious of, uh, with the the whole issue around um, you know body image and these these sorts of things. I, rec I recognize that, but I think we know when we're, you know, we're feeling healthy and we're, we're feeling like we, we could, we could be healthier. And, um, and that, and that comes with this, like, so being metabolically, um, unhealthy is, is just your inability to access the body fat, uh, as a, as a fuel. So, and, and that really kind of relates to the key hormone is insulin. And you just want to have um, a balanced level of, of insulin. Like insulin's there to do its job to get rid of blood glucose, um, which is kind of a you know we don't want that too at too high of a levels. So it's a toxic um, metabolite. Um, it can you know causes loads of loads of issues. Uh, and um, and yeah, you want it kind of controlled. And we. You know, we know with Super Sapiens, we want a stable level of blood glucose throughout our, our daily life. And we can, we can mess that glucose up in lots of different ways. We can mess it up with stress. We can mess it up with nutrition. Uh, we can mess it up with poor sleep. So again, goes back to, there's so much insight, really, we can get with the tool that, that this podcast is all about. 
Just to follow up on that quick, I'm fascinated by this because I do have belly fat I've been trying to lose for years. I've done four Ironmans and you automatically think I'm training for an Ironman. I do marathons. This belly fat, should I should be getting rid of this. So you mentioned that an inability to access that as fuel. On the other side of the coin, is it also... Um, you know, having excess, like excess in your diet, maybe in that I train so much, you know, sometimes I'm training 20 hours a week, but that last bit of stubborn belly fat, I just can't lose. It's an inability to access it as fuel. And also just because I do have a sweet tooth, man, and I love treating myself and that can then be ex I'm going to say that before you guys call me out. I'm just putting that out on the table. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to call out your, I'm going to call out your late night couch cereal habit, Zylan. I've stopped that. I've stopped that. That's your weakness. I know this. Yeah. I've stopped that. Oh. Yeah. But I mean, really, boys, there's no excuse for the both of you. You got access to your, to that, to the greatest tool around, you know, and, and I didn't come on here to, to, to make an advert for super sapiens, but like that, that, that monitor that you have is, is absolutely gold. And when you have that cereal at, uh, you know, 8 or 9 p.m., you'll see your... I do not open the app. I don't open the app after that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if, I mean, if you, if you, you know, and that's clearly like this is, you got to think about what's going on, right? So you've got, um, you've got this, you're craving, let's say you do go for the cereal, right? So you're craving a dopamine hit. Or um, and there's a, there, or there's a problem with your apostat and your and your hungry right like that's a that's a message that's a signal in your brain that you, your your body's probably you're either look, searching for a dopamine hit or you're or you're looking for your apostat to get um, to that's telling you you need nutrients so you need to think about okay what are the and you really want to prepare your refrigerator and cupboards with all those, uh, you know, those whole foods that are going to nourish you, your, your body. So they, they, and they just need to come from mother earth. Ultimately they can, you know, again, I'm not, I'm sort of ag agnostic. Um, I, I think that in the beginning, it's probably helpful to really become metabolically flexible and work on that through, through diet. So I, you know, I think you, you kind of probably could go through a sort of a, a low carb phase. Uh, and Dan Plews does a great job of this actually with his Endure IQ uh, program as well. Uh, I think he's an ambassador for super sapiens, but it, I mean, that's, there's a great, if you're looking to um, take a course and ult ultimately learn how to become fat adapted, take Dan's course. And, uh, and he sort of walks you through kind of this, this, this phase to, to get yourself, um, you know, uh, metabolically flexible, but yeah, like you've, you've got to, you've got to quench that, that apostat and you don't necessarily, but, but you want to leave the dopamine rush alone. And uh, if you're quenching the apostat with nutrients, with better food choices, um, that's going to go into, you know, doing all the things that we want in terms of building, you know, all of the, the building blocks in the cells, um, the, you know, that are going to make mitochondria um, that are going to be good at, at burning fat for you. So, you know, and, I, and again, I think I things like, you know, if you could have red meat on, on hand, um, you know, if I'm not sure what your, your beliefs are around, around food, around, uh, you know, um, vegetarianism, but like meat is just really, really healthy. I live, 
I live in Africa, so let's just put that out there. There you go, right? He lives so, in the land of Burvos that breeds the Springboks, so he's <laughs> he's good. He's good with red meat. Good, good. Yeah, well, so, the, I mean, red meat is just laden with all the things that we need to build those mitochondria, right? Like um, like the, all the B vitamins are just, just critical. Um, and then the iron levels as well are really, really, really excellent too. But those would be better choices. Having, having more Borova in the, in your fr- refrigerator on, on standby and reach for that as opposed to your, um, as opposed to your cereal, um, you know, and there's this whole, whole issue with reds and stuff that's out there as well. And I, I think that's, you know, that, that, that energy, I, I, I'm completely on board with having, you know, uh, energy on board. Um, but I'm not big on getting that energy supplied by sugar. Uh, and because I think in that case, you're just giving your body, um, you're more giving your body a dopamine hit as opposed to really supplying it with energy. And the, the better strategy would be to have energy in, in the form of more, more balanced nutrients, good fats, good amino acids um, that come on board and, uh, and give you that energy and go towards building a, a stronger, a stronger you. Um, because the, again, the, the sweet tooth hit, it just, it, it hits you and then it leaves you and it leaves you worse off. Right. It's, and it spikes your insulin. It puts you in a fat, uh, storing kind of state, which you don't really want to be in. You want to be moving towards that, um, that fasted state at the end of your day. Um, yeah. And then again, you can, this is why the fasted morning ride is just so, so gold because you can wake up at, say you wake up at 6am after, and you've had your last, uh, good meal at eight, you know, seven or eight or whatever. And you're already, you're already starting there with maybe, you know, up to, uh, you know, 10 or 12 hours fasted. Right. And you're, and then you're just extending that, uh, maybe for start with one or two or, and then build to three hours kind of thing and then have your feed. And, and always listen to your apostat. If you're hungry, you should be eating. Um, if you're, and then if you're not hungry, then, then don't eat. But, you know, you've got a really great sensor in your, in your, in your brain that can, that can guide you um, to the right decisions. You mentioned reds there. I just want to be clear. You weren't talking about red meat. You were talking about relative energy deficiency in sport. So just for the listeners, in case there was a bit of confusion there, so that if you're going back and thinking, what you, he said reds, but he said red meat was good. That that's sort of just to be really clear there. It's a uh, basically under fueling, um, and so so that's uh, I think that's yeah that's great advice. So thank you there. And you, you did mention Super Sapiens, and you mentioned um, the, the use of it. I guess what's your personal experience with CGM as a technology? Have you used it? What are you what are your experiences been? Yeah, I just had amazing experiences. It was um, really eye opening. If if you haven't uh, if you haven't trialed it before, I would highly recommend even for a short time, even for like a month or two, like you can get so much insight into your own practices, uh, of around nutrition, around stress, around exercise. So, um, and I wrote a, uh, a blog, um, on Dan and I's, um, website, pleasingprof.com and on my experiences on that. And um, I'll, but I'll give you the Coles Notes version of it. The first experience that I learned as a, a low carb athlete um, is how low my blood glucose can get where I still feel great. And you know, there's limitations with interstitial versus 
you know, blood levels in, in these CGMs. And I'm not exactly sure, you know, of the, um, of, of those limitations. So, but, but irrespective when I'm, when I was doing like, uh, three and four hour fasted rides, my blood glucose was down around, um, would go from a resting level of five millimoles down to like three millimoles. And, um, so, and again, in a milligrams per deciliter, that might be like a 90 to a, you know, uh, 50, something like that, um, as a, as a ballpark, I think. So, and these are like, um, and I was hanging out there, right. Going, you know, pushing 220, 30 Watts up, up a hill, no problem. Like feeling great chit chat. And, um, so what's going on with that? Why in my case, in my context with a, with a four hour ride, how can I do that? Um, and you know, because that's the levels I'm talking about on the low level, that's diabetic coma kind of levels. So something else must be going on in my body to replace that energy that I need to push myself up the hill. Right. And again, this would be the same in Kyle's case. And, and so super metabolically flexible, really able to, to leverage fat as a fuel. And I think when we, when we, you know, I'm guessing, but when we look to like the Jeff Volek faster studies where he's, he's doing these three hour rides between a group of high carb athletes and a group of very low carb athletes. And we're seeing other uh, metabolites in the mix in, in, in these cases, particularly ketones, right? Beta hydroxybutyrate and, and all the other ones, and also lactate, lactate as a fuel. Uh, it will be fascinating once lactate is available in a continuous monitor as well, which we hope it will be one day. Um, but it's coming. It's coming. Excellent. Well, I can't wait because I think it would just be so insightful. Again, if you look to the, the Jeff Fuller faster data in the low carb athlete doing these three hour, um, three hour runs, lactate is going sky, skyward. Now, normally we would think, well, that's got to be really bad, right? Blood lactate, it's the evil, um, you know, metabolite, except no, it's being used as a fuel. It's just a different fuel. The liver is kicking that out. And um, so the low carb athlete is just, they're accessing fuels in a different way. It's not just fat. It's not, and it's not just, um, it's not just uh, ketones. And it's not just lactate, but it's all of those, all of those fuels are going on. And it's, and, and, and of course a little bit of glucose as well, but it's, it's like, you know, it's almost like there's four, four metabolites almost sort of that they're, they're getting in various different doses. I'm guessing we need, we need more work in here, but again, back to the, you know, the next 10 years sort of thing, this is where we are going to get to, we're going to be gaining more and more understanding of what is actually occurring in the field. And, you know, it's, and it'll be some of these insights will, I believe, kind of come out. Oh, sorry, that was that was one. <laughs> I've got more. Okay, so next, so the next one, the next, the next uh, profound insight that I got from my CGM was I was sitting on my laptop uh, just doing work for High Performance Sport New Zealand, and this was at the phase where in we were growing big time as a uh, as an organization. And we were getting more and more like um, we, we used to be like that really s small and nimble sort of team, but now we're getting like all these accountants and, and whatnot. And they were, they <laughs> were the accountants and they were, yeah. And they were, they were, they were, you know, before I was able to, I just had this nice cushy 
open budget that I would just be, um, you know, moving and doing everything that I want. Respons- responsibly using. It was sweet. It was sweet. I could just, you know, and anyways, like, like you kind of, you get the situation right. But we now, um, there was like, I was being watched and I had to justify every single uh, expense that I made. I was like, the handcuffs were being put on me and it was, I was so angry. And this is at the same time when I'm trialing my, uh, my Dexcom and my, my CGM. And I was, and an email came back from accounting. I was furious. And uh, of course, what do you think, right? My CGM, I'm just like, I could not believe how the response in my CGM, I was just like, I'm just sitting on the couch on my laptop and my glucose is through the roof. It's just through the roof. So what's happening, right? So, um, I'm stressed and there's a, when you're stressed, you're, you know, you you get this big surge of cortisol as one, as one of, of many hormones and cortisol is a glucocorticoid. So its job is to push, um, push glucose out because, well, in where we came from, I should be a, um, you know, there's a saber tooth tiger, right. That's chasing me. Of course the, the saber tooth isn't chasing me. It's just my accountant. And, uh, way, way worse, way worse. <laughs> but this is the problem, right? But again, this is the insight that you can get from things like super sapiens, right? You can actually see how much stress is affecting you. And what could you do with that? Well, maybe you could work on meditation techniques or mindfulness techniques, or yeah, just it, it, it can be really, really helpful in making an intervention that can go back to really helping your health because that big rate rising in glucose wasn't helping me, right? Because insulin comes with that. And, um, so, you know, that's going to slow down my ability to, to adapt and, and be healthy as an, as a, as a human. So, so that was the uh, second one. And I guess the third one would just be like, um, finding out individual foods that, affected me because this is there's another I've, I've forgotten the author I'm sorry but there was another really cool study that kind of showed when they were initially looking at the CGMs it was done in Dexcoms and when they were kind of going through um, it was a large large sample size but they were just showing examples of how uh, I think they, they used the example of a banana and a cookie and uh, in the exact same dose of banana and cookie the response was completely opposite for one individual. So you, uh, David, Zylon, you, um, me, we're all going to respond a little bit different to, to the foods. What matters? It all, or, the only thing that matters is our own individual response to the food. So you can find out what foods affect you, not someone else, but what, what affects you. And that's, again, I think the other, the third um, massive insight that you get from a product like, like a Super Sapiens. No, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I've shared this on the podcast before, your glucose response to stress. I, my most fascinating one happened earlier this year in July when I was at the Women's Tour de France and my friend and business partner, Ashley Montpassio, was on the Tourmalet stage. I was at the top um, at the finish line with her husband watching and we were very invested. This was a stage she had targeted. We really wanted it to do well and it was just woman against woman up the climb, you know, when it was just separated, they were all separated within 400, 500 meters and they were climbing this for an hour. And I was like, 
shaking at the finish line. You know, when you're uncontrollably just shaking, nervous. And I opened the app that evening when we got to dinner. For an hour, my glucose was the same as if I was doing like a 10K race and taking a gel every 20 minutes. Like it was just, I think I was sitting up at around, I posted his Instagram, I think I was sitting up at around... 130 140 you know it was uh, yeah it was an eye opener to me so that's that stress that response to stress is a real thing man yeah yeah and actually you've you've just hit another one that i just remembered as well so i did a again i was going through the process i was wearing cgm i did a vo2 max test for a study that we were that we were doing um back at AUT. um and again you know now we sort of know this stuff but at the time i didn't didn't it's funny how we just, we, this, it just opens so many doors, but so I do this VO2 max test. And uh, again, this is me in me, a low carb athlete. I've had no, no real nutrition around this, but you know, when you do VO2 max test, you go to absolute maximum exercise. You can imagine now the response. So um, it's nice and low. And then all of a sudden when I'm doing, when I get to, to VO2 max in the progressive exercise test, I get this massive glucose response and this massive spillover which um, I guess continues for maybe 30 minutes there after the test. It, it, remains, it remains elevated or maybe even a longer kind of thing. So again, we need to take this, when I, when I think of a concept of high intensity interval training, we also need to take this into, into account when we do HIIT training, especially if we do any like, you know, real big HIIT, hit sessions to exhaustion, that's going to come with probably also a big load of stress hormones and, and, and glucose. And we also have to be careful, you know, maybe in the context of, um, the, you know, the busy entrepreneur, whatever busy person. Right. And they only have time for a short workout and they think they're, so they're stressed all day, probably with a high glucose level. And then they do a hit session and which is also probably adding more, uh, stress hormones and glucose to the system. Is that necessarily the good way to make them healthy and become metabolically flexible? Well, probably not. If I'm guessing now, probably not. I might've thought different, um, a couple of years ago, but I don't think so anymore. It's probably adding, you're adding stress to an already stressed system and maybe the better alter alternative might be to do an L2 session. So, um, that, that would be the, uh, the fourth insight. I yeah. think. That's really, that's really interesting. I hadn't really considered it in that respect. Cause I just keep my, my take on it was yes, the glucose goes high, but then you become a glucose sink afterwards. So it's a net gain, but your, your point's really well made, which is, yeah. No. Like you, no, you, you made, you make a good point too, right? So you are, you are opening up, you're, you're absolutely right. You are opening up the glucose sink through the, um, the calcium glute fours. So yeah. So yeah, re really good point, but I, I don't know the answer. Well, I, I think. Answer. The, the archetype you're talking about, right, is somebody who's go, go, go all day. And perhaps there's, it's very kind of Zen Buddhist thought is like the thing that you should be doing is the thing that you resent most. And so maybe the easy training and not killing yourself training is, is good practice for you as a human, you know, regardless of what it's doing metabolically, maybe it's good practice for you to actually have to do something that isn't, you know, a hundred miles an hour all the time. Yeah, maybe. But again, I think with, uh, with a sensor like super sapiens, this allows you to pop maybe with a coach if you need it, but you are able to consider these things now. Right. Um, because you have data on yourself, like, like, like we said before, it really only matters what's, what's happening in you. So this 
allows you to really get a lot of insight in, into you. And you can kind of see that it's not, even though you are just getting those uh, glucose as a measure, you can kind of, when, when it's added um, on top of the context that you understand around stress and what's actually happening, like just what Zylon sort of said as well, right? Where he, he reflected on when he, when he looked, went back to his app and he knew what was going on at that certain time, it all, it all made sense. It's like, okay, this, this huge spike in glucose wasn't because I was taking on a bunch of pizza. It was because I was cheering loudly and whatnot. And I was so excited for what was happening. So it's the same sort of thing. You can always kind of retrospectively look back, see what habits or, um, uh, you know, context is, is actually kind of causing these things and then potentially readjust in the future if needed. Paul, this has been a fascinating chat, man. We started off with your romantic life and then we <laughs> jumped into a whole bunch of learnings. And I mean, we were saying to you before we started recording, what we like doing is it, it, it's a copyright chat. And I literally feel that's what this has turned into. It's just turned into a fireside chat where we've, you know, touched on a, a bunch of different topics, but in a really natural, organic way. And it's felt just like a really, really nice chat. So thank you for... Thank you for your time, David. I can see you nodding. I think you feel the same way. Yeah, hundred percent. It's been it's been great. I wanted to get you on here, touch on some of these topics, and uh, yeah, you haven't disappointed, Paul. Really appreciate you and appreciate the work you're doing in general, both in the AI uh, athletic AI space because it's a it's a really cool uh, realm we're moving into with some AI assisted coaching, and then of course the podcast. We've we've talked offline before about some of my uh, enjoyment of the podcast, so I'd encourage people to go listen to that one as well. The Training Science Podcast. It's great. Really, I mean, especially if you're interested in, in training and coaching and methodology, it's, yeah, there's some really good stuff. And if you want athlete stories, you've had Killian Jornet on. So uh, that was a great podcast as well. I really enjoyed that one. So uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you both, guys. I really, really enjoyed the, the chat. I did feel like a coffee, you know, coffee ride together. And, um, and yeah, and I really, I really value you guys as well. Love your, uh, love your chemistry, love your podcast, uh, and, and love your product as well, as you, as you can tell. Awesome. Well, thank you. David, how good was that chat? I said to Paul offline, we might have to have him back on the podcast. And I actually meant that. That really felt like just a nice, natural conversation on topics that we're all passionate about and learning a lot of, well, me learning a lot of stuff at the same time. Yeah, I agree. Although it's not good of you to out yourself to all the previous guests who said you probably wanted to have back, mate. But uh, we'll get there. It's all good. <laughs> they don't listen this far down the podcast all good um a couple of things we spoke about so we covered today he was talking about research versus practice this is something i'm very passionate about because i'm very much a learn on the job kind of person versus sitting in a university um room somewhere he spoke about the benefits of doing both research versus practice yeah and without wanting to like um sound like a bit of a fanboy. I think, uh, you know, Brendan Egan's another good example of this. I think the people who can crack it are, are a bit of a unicorn, people who can do both, but I think they, they really help to make a difference in the space. And I'm not saying that people who are doing research or who are just doing practice aren't making a difference, but to have that ability to blend the two really helps because understanding what's happening at the coalface and the practice informs your researching and then the research informs your practice. And it's sort of this beautiful cycle that continues going rather than having things be in a vacuum or, or be a little bit, um, yeah, it, it just changes the lens in which you design your research and, and the way you approach your coaching. So I think it's great or the way you approach your practice. So I love it. 
I absolutely love something you mentioned twice, which as a podcaster, as a storyteller, as someone who interviews people to create content, he spoke in his context about asking good questions. Man, learning how to answer good questions can lead to magic. You also notice he told me twice that I asked good questions. He didn't say that once to you, mate. So suffice to say, uh, we know who's succeeding here. But but it is... Uh, I have no recollection. Literally have no recollection like, recollection thank, of that. You sure that happened? Yeah, thankfully we've got the, the audio, mate. So when you're editing, you can go back and check it. Um, just don't edit that bit out. Uh, no, I, I think asking good questions gets you really far in life um, as a method to learn. And when you think about that, where do you need to learn? Of course, yeah, the basics make sense. But also as a coach, you want to learn about the athlete. You want to learn about what makes them tick. You want to learn about how to get them better. You want to ask other people to give you advice on it. So asking the right questions and good questions is is really powerful. And I think, uh, yeah, I just asking better questions and, and spending time thinking about your questions is really, really important. Um, so, yeah, somebody who's really good at it that I really admire is Tim Ferriss, actually. He asks great questions. Um, what was your takeaway about, he was saying that the perfect performance isn't just a result of perfect training. Yeah, I think there's, there's two ways to think about this. One is to understand that there are more factors and luck is part of it, right? And so it makes it even more special. And I think that's kind of the context he was bringing in there is other competitors and stuff. But I think he also sort of mentioned that or, or the other context that to take from there, and this is probably the, the take home for me and for me to try and impart on listeners is it's very rare that you have a perfect training block. And trying to chase a perfect training block and use that as, you know, I didn't have a perfect training block in the back of your head as a negative thing. Like just, that's just not reality. Life happens. You're not a professional athlete and even they don't have perfect training blocks. So understand that probably most of your good performances, if not all of them have been without a perfect training block. So you don't need to have one. And just because you have one doesn't guarantee you anything because there's a number of things that happen between the end of the training block and the end of the performance. So there's a ton that happens. The two are at best correlated, maybe not even that. So they're not always 100% correlated or even causative. So, yeah. I've started building in disruptions into my preparation, mentally preparing for it. At the moment, I'm training for a marathon. Four weeks before the marathon, I had to travel to the tour of Turkey. I had really horrible connecting flights there through Ethiopia at 9 p.m., um, Lebanon, landing in Lebanon at 2 a.m. and then going on to Antalya and Turkey at 4 a.m. and then another two-hour drive to the airport, to the to the hotel. That kind of travel is not great for the immune system. I got sick when I arrived. The team doctor told me, listen, take a couple of days off running. Um, you, you know, you won't lose anything for it. That kind of thing would have upset me before. But because I had mentally prepared for it in this marathon training block, knowing that, okay, I do have travel coming up, that often disrupts me. Something could go wrong. Something Like just learning to yeah, prepare for it, adapt to it. And like with all the endurance events I've done, there's hardly ever been a perfect training block and just making peace with that. Yeah. It's just the stress around it is not going to help. It's, it's enough to say as well. So like, you know, concede, I, I often think if a training block goes perfectly, then I left something on the table and that's not to say you should be trying to injure yourself or all of that, but it's, you know, if everything goes perfectly, you're probably doing stuff that's way, way too easy because forever something will come up. Durability. We touched on durability and I sort of had a few follow-up questions to dig a little deeper into it. Yeah. I mean, I think this is the, if you said like, what's one concept that is going to really change the way we understand endurance training in the next little while, I think durability is the answer. Um, the 
people who are listening to podcasts, who are on the cutting edge, who are researchers and scientists who happen to be listening to this, um, I'm not sure they do, but if they do, they're going to be like, yeah, it's already a big thing. We already know. But for the rest of us or for the rest of the listeners, they'll be like, what's durability and, and what are we talking about? And perhaps the easiest um, example for cyclists is the difference between your sort of 20 minute FTP and your 60 minute FTP. Uh, and, and why some people's don't convert perhaps that, that might be durability for the runners in the group. It's, it's why doesn't my, why doesn't the rule of thumb for, you know, doubling my marathon time and adding five or 10 minutes, my half marathon time and adding five or 10 minutes, why doesn't that work for my marathon? And the answer is durability there as well. So it's your ability to sort of sustain effort, right? And you're going to have a decay rate, but it's about what that's just like your ability to sustain that. So decaying less, I guess. So some people call it capacity. Some people call it fatigue resistance. Some people call it resilience, this is classic physiology is we're going to call it a bunch of names, but the physiological phenomenon is the same, which is your ability to keep going at that same intensity without it disrupting physiology more and more and more and more. And that as Paul well mentioned, that's not so relevant in say zone one of a either model or zone two of a five zone model. Maybe there's a little bit of it there, but once you get to zone three in a five zone model or zone two in a three zone model, that's when you start to see this really manifest. And of course, above your second threshold above your second ventilatory threshold, which is, you know, zone five or, or zone three in a three zone model that, yeah, you, you don't have really the ability to sustain that. That's not really where durability is a factor, but it's more in that, that between the two thresholds where we're doing things like marathons, where we're doing things like Ironmans, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you to Paul for coming on once again and making his time available. What a nice guy. And he said, Hey, We'll talk for as long as you want to talk, and we really appreciate your time. We really appreciate you sharing your learnings with us, and yeah, we hope you did too. If you liked this podcast, please rate it, share it, subscribe to the Super Sapiens podcast, and get in touch with us. Let us know what you would like to hear from us. Email david at supersapiens.com and also join the Super Sapiens Discord channel. David, thank you for a great, great episode. Appreciate you, mate. Appreciate you too, mate. Thank you.